Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. David Duchovny is on the show today. Okay, he's, uh, you know, him from the uh, X-Files and Californication, uh, but he's also a musician and he's an author and he's got a new novel out. Uh, it's called Truly Like Lightning and it's an amazing conversation. If you listen regularly, you'll find, and I know this just because I'm doing it, that a lot of the interviews during the plague have been thorough and good and connected in a way that is surprising. And, and actually, in some cases, deeper and better than had I done them person to person live here in the, in the garage, which is, believe me. When we chose to start doing Zoom because we had no choice like everybody else or figuring out some platform to make this work, it was a big deal because we have really stood by this in-person interview thing since the beginning of the show. It was a big transition and both Brendan and I were nervous. But oddly, what's happened is we've gotten a lot of guests that we probably wouldn't have gotten before and... I couldn't quite figure out why some of these things were going so well or that they were more interesting and connected and deeper in a way is there's a lot of things that aren't happening. There's a lot of defenses already down. There's a couple of things happening. You know, when you don't when you don't have a celebrity or an actor or um, an artist who has who's in the middle of a day driving around doing TV hits, doing radio spots. Uh, you know, some of them traveling with hairstylists or trying to figure out how to get here or just dealing with traffic, all that stuff. You know, what has to shed when they get in here on the mic and see, you know, oh, whose house is this? What's going on? It It's great. It's real. It happens in the moment. But these things, uh, the new ones happen in the moment, too. But what I started to notice differently was that and I, I sort of thought about this is that none of that they're coming in from the other room of their house or wherever they're staying. They're just, you know, they're setting up in their living room or they're just walking down their hall. Some of them may not even be wearing pants. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that all this sort of buildup of shields, defenses, and just dealing with a day of work, not there. So that's one part of it. The comfort factor that they're in a place that they're already comfortable. I don't have to make them comfortable. 
And the other thing is, I think a lot of people are starved for connection. I don't like some people have a better relationship with their parents. I don't um, I don't FaceTime with my mother. I don't FaceTime with my brother. I don't Zoom with anybody. There's no family Zooms going on. The only Zooming I'm doing is for my podcast. And there's a few people I still see in person. But I think a lot of people, even if they're seeing people on Zoom or in their orbit family, most people are not having the casual conversations that they used to or, or just having the comfort of regular life. So I think a lot of times, like with Duchovny, because we had an amazing conversation. And I think it was just because he's a smart guy. I don't think a lot of people talk to him like we talked or that he assumes they will. I'm not saying I'm smart, but I can keep up. But I think a lot of people just aren't having conversations in general. So that combination of them already being comfortable where they are and the fact that uh, people aren't talking to people as much as they used to. They're not out in the world much. They're, they're a little starved for connection. The combination of those two leads to you know, what have been some fairly amazing uh, conversations on this show. And Duchovny's no different. It's, it's a really good one that you're going to listen to shortly. But I got to tell you, just talking to other people, even if, even if it's people I don't know, like I interviewed, who did I interview last week? Sam Neill. Or even this Duchovny conversation that you're about to hear. Just to connect with somebody, just to unload a little bit, relax, get into their life, what's going on with you, how you doing, tell me about your life. I talk to my buddy Sam Lipside every night. I ask him about his kids. Y you know, it's really what we're built to do and you should keep doing it. Because I'm sometimes I'm out of my fucking mind, and I don't know what the fuck is going to happen, or how I'm even going to, or how I'm even going to be able to talk to somebody else, or what about, or what are they like, or what the fuck is going to happen? And God damn it, why am I even doing this to begin with? And then I have a conversation with them within five minutes of talking to somebody, a stranger. I feel better. That's what people do, man. This is not the time to just get lost in rabbit holes of buying things you don't need, although it is fun. And our economy relies on it. You don't take that back. Please buy a lot of stuff you don't need. But uh, help people out. Give to charity. Do, what you, do whatever you got to do to make you feel engaged like you're doing something. But the, I guess my point is talk to people. You, know, you can do the better help thing, but also talk to your friends. Try to talk to your family. I always forget because there's something about, I've learned that I like to isolate. I didn't realize it, but I, I'm okay by myself. And some days it's sort of, I'd rather sit at home and feel sorry for myself for no reason than engage. You know, feel like somehow my life, you know, got derailed. Everyone's life got derailed. And everything is amplified now when we have all this time and this plague is upon us. And there's fear and, and, and tension and anxiety politically and financially is that every little thing that if it would have just happened in ordinary life would have been daunting, but it would have just folded into the flow of ordinary life. Now everything is amplified and you can fully process everything, all the bad shit, all the good shit that happens to you. You can really fucking take it in. It really lands tragedy, joys appreciation, horror. Man, you could take a few days with any of that. Really fucking churn on it. And I'm trying to stay in the light, people. Trying to stay in the light. If any of you want to hang out in the morning, I'm available usually. I've been doing these live Instagrams for months now. 
even when I have nothing to say, I'll get on there, we'll play some music together, go through some records, hang out with my cat. If that interests you, it helps me out. David Duchovny's book, Truly Like Lightning, comes out tomorrow, February 2nd. And I told him I I, I didn't read it, but I looked over it and I kind of got a sense of it a little bit. But I, I told him, you know, there were there's other things we could talk about. But you can get that wherever you get books. He has a third album coming out, music, uh, soon. He's already released a single from it called Laying on the Tracks. You can check that out on YouTube. And uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. This is a good talk, folks. It's a great talk. This is me and David Ducat. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts where are you at david i'm in la oh really yeah i was i was in new york until uh saturday i came out of here i'm going to uh, shoot a couple things um all over the world which is crazy have you done any shooting in the uh, plague? Um, yeah, I, I, I did a reshoot uh, about four or five days on a, on a movie, and it was it was odd. You know, as you know, you want kind of a a loose feeling on set, kind yeah. of creative. Feeling. You know, you just have to get used to this kind of stilted, um, masked uh, mask on, mask off. I know. I shot a movie for twelve days, and it, it it's definitely bizarre screws your hair up you know it's not it's not not good for an actor no hair face you know you got the mask <laughs> on the whole time yeah. and then like right before you talk you take it off yeah. were you able to focus uh yeah i was in fact it, it it created more of a special space yeah for just that that moment of performance yeah uh, i'm not saying i prefer it in, uh, by any stretch but <laughs> yeah cer- certainly you know you just felt like okay there's this little magic circle here we're just going to do what we need to do and you know yeah do what we can't do so a lot of squirting and wiping going on everywhere <laughs> <laughs> it was that- never enough never <laughs> enough squirting and wiping <laughs> hands are always dry i don't think my hands are ever going to be the same again also, I've grown this thing out for for the thing I'm going to shoot uh, next week, and it's not a beard is not mask friendly. I don't know why you're doing it. No, no, the virus can just sneak right around through the whisker gap. <laughs> it's also uncomfortable. There, there's nothing comfortable about any of it. <laughs> yeah, these are small complaints, but uh, I flew when I flew on Saturday. I I was triple masked, quadruple masked. Actually, oh my god! You flew yeah. commercial. I did, but I've had COVID, so I figure I'm I, I'm kind of immune right now. I mean, I had it I had it almost three months ago, so I'm told 
I'm pretty good for another few weeks anyway. So really, I mean, yeah. How bad did how what were the symptoms? What happened? Um, well, since you asked my symptoms, I will tell you my symptoms. Uh, I'll the take main it. one was was an astonishing uh, diarrhea. Great. Which, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lost some weight i it didn't feel it didn't be, because that's not the symptom that people seem to focus on uh, yeah you can still breathe on. with diarrhea <laughs> yes you can yeah and uh and uh no i just didn't think i had it i right. thought oh i've i've got food poisoning so right. a couple of days went by and i thought okay food poisoning is usually done in a day so then i got tested and sure enough i had it and um it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't uh, certainly nothing like uh, I've heard. Yeah, it seems like it's a, a unique experience for everybody who gets it. And uh, like my uncle and my aunt who are in their 70s, they got it. He was tired for a week and couldn't really do anything. She had a head cold and it was over. Right. You had. Right. Uh, I have not talked to uh, the, the diarrhea people. You're one of the diarrhea people. <laughs> That's that's actually how we like to be known. Yeah, the the COVID diarrhea crew. I've I've started a, a support group. <laughs> Did uh, but like fevers, breathing, all that okay? Taste, sense of taste, uh, taste, taste, smell. None of that went away. Um, what I had fatigue. I had I had a very weird kind of uh, uh, muscle powerlessness in my legs. It just felt like. The, the the way I would describe it is, and this is completely made up. And and again, remember, I'm I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Uh, it just felt like something my body had that it had never seen before, and it was trying to throw all these symptoms at me. Yeah. To alert me that something was fucked up. Um, but they didn't they didn't like make any sense. They they didn't seem connected. So it didn't feel like anything you'd had before all at once. So I, that's an exactly. interesting way to look at it. So it's like your body's like, well, this is new. Uh, let's try to fight yeah. it and just give well, them diarrhea. Let's try to fight it. Let's let's alert this body here that that there's yeah. something we didn't understand that's going on. So we're just going to make odd things hurt for a while and see if we can get his attention. Oh, you got you got like uh, joint pain and stuff. Well, just that 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 powerlessness in the legs, just that weird feeling of not having my legs underneath me. Wow. Well, yeah. it's you got lucky. It sounds like I did. I got lucky. Did you have any visions? Did you have any moments of like, oh fuck, this is it? I, I guess I was maybe a little afraid at first, just yeah. because I didn't know, I didn't know what the intensity was going to be. Yeah. Know? Uh, I was more focused, you know, I had seen my my kids, I'd seen my daughter, I'd seen my son, and my daughter has pre-existing lung conditions. So I was really, I was just terrified that I had in, infected them. Mm. And um, once that passed, which was like five or six days into mine, yeah, um, I, I was really just focusing on, on that in the beginning. So um, by then it was kind of over for me. Did you, were you able to track it? Like where you got it? Not that it matters. But you I were in, you were in New York though, right? Find the guy. Find yeah. the guy. You. Yeah. You sneeze. You fuck. Um, now you'll pay. <laughs> no, it was weird because I'm really careful. I was in New York. Uh, I had I hadn't traveled, so I got it in New York. And um, yeah, maybe a cab, maybe an Uber. Yeah. You know, but yeah. really no, huh? No, like event that's the scariest thing to me is like i've gone i'm doing n95 mask i got the i go out with a plastic shield i you know i just yes. it's like and you know now i've i've gotten this far without yeah. getting it now the vaccines are in truck somewhere and <laughs> I, 
I just have this horrible fear of like, if I get it in the next couple of months, I'm going to be, are you fucking kidding me? So all yeah. that work, why didn't I just get it at the beginning? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I can't answer that. I can't no, answer that. Because I was scared and terrified and careful. And I go to fucking, I go this, but now there's a, a version out here that is highly yes. contained. Everyone, one in three people get, they, the way they talk about it, like one in three people, it's almost like we're trying to get it here. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting close. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're getting that herd immunity going. Oh, know? yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's going to... I don't know if that just works on a county level. Well, there's also culling the herd is the problem. You got to cull the herd to get to the herd immunity. Well, that that seems to be happening, and that's the, the sad yeah. part about the whole thing. So yeah. you're out here to, to work for... You're just doing five days reshoots? Is that what you said? No, no. I did a reshoot uh, about six months ago, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to work uh, for like four days on an indie, and then I'm going to work on a, on a Netflix... A TV show, and then I'm going. I'm actually going to go to London and shoot a movie. So I'm like chasing the COVID hotspots as well. Good doing. for you, man. Yeah, I mean they probably know that you've already had it. They're like, let's hire. It's a, <laughs> it's a new. Your agents like that's how they're pitching you now. Look, he might not be right for the part, but he's already had the COVID. So on on an insurance level, this is the best choice you can make. Yeah, it used to be, you know, when I was starting out as an actor, they would ask for like special skills on the back of your headshot. Yeah, yeah. And I'd always lie and put like horse riding, juggling, fencing, rock climbing. None of I didn't do any of that shit. But now I'll just put had COVID. (laughs) I'm good to go. I'm sad. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a place out here? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do. That's nice. I love LA, actually. You do, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, do you, uh, I guess it's like, it can't, this whole, I mean, I'm kind of delusional and, or, or not delusional, I'm just so detached now. It's hard to remember what things used to be like. I can't yeah, imagine well, what New York is like. It's just like this weird ghost town, right? Well, it's not quite a ghost town, you know, because I think at this point in the pandemic, people are, 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 they're fed up and frustrated and bored and they're, they're kind of inching back into, into their, their normal ways of moving around. So, it's definitely quieter, you know. Obviously, yeah. there's no restaurant activity or anything like that. But people are out. Yeah, people are out. People are definitely out. Out here in, in L.A., it seems like people give zero fucks. I mean, you go places. It's like the, there's traffic again. I don't know what everyone's doing. You know, I go hiking out here and try to dodge the maskless Armenians. <laughs> Let's not single out an ethnic group. <laughs> I'm sorry, the maskless uh, people in my neighborhood, <laughs> which has a high Armenian. Uh, <laughs> population i think that it's just human nature it's been it's been almost a year right i it's know just yeah 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 people people are ready to die they're ready to die unfortunately i think so but people can't be vigilant this long it's just not in our nature to stay on guard for that long i think we're built to be on guard for short spurts yeah and we enjoy entertainment needing out i mean that's yeah. the problem <laughs> well, there's that too <laughs> So wait, now the I I've got the book I I looked at the book I couldn't I couldn't read the whole book. You just um, looked at it. You, you held it in your hands and you looked at it. No, I read some things. Yeah, <laughs> uh, truly like truly like lightning. Now, when you start a novel, because I don't know how many people know you as a novelist, and I don't know how many people know you ten. as as a musician, ten, and five. I don't know how five, but but I know people <laughs> know you as uh, the guy on the X Files most. And in Californication and whatever, you know, but this is your fourth novel. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you're, you're a busy guy. You don't stop doing shit. No, no. And when you write a book about a guy who's in, like, I, what was the beginning of this book? The guy's a Mormon. So were you just, you're like, were you obsessed with Mormonism and then decided, I want to learn more about that and I'm going to set my guy there? Not at all. Uh, the, the, 
the beginnings of this story uh, are from like uh, 20 years ago. Actually, when I was doing the X-Files, yeah. I, I, I had written a uh, an episode that was kind of based on a guy named, not based on, but had used this guy named Mark Hoffman as an inspiration. And Mark Hoffman was a Mormon forger mm. and, and, and a murderer and, and a, a bomber, actually, he ended up being. He's in prison now. And uh, he he forged uh, Joseph Smith's letters. Oh, I, th- I kind of very... remember this. When was it? Yeah, like in the late 90s. I yeah, think. yeah, I kind of, yeah, right. Right. So I was kind of captivated by this story because uh, Hoffman, well, the, ama- <laughs> the brilliant thing he did was he, there are rumored writings of Joseph Smith, as you can imagine, not a lot survives, but there are rumors of, 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 of like writings that deal with fringe beliefs and, and sure you know, things. so what hoffman did was when he was forging these joseph smith writings he would forge like the most controversial uh most non non-fundamentalist mormon strains yeah in, into these things knowing that the church he, he wasn't trying to sell it to collectors right he wanted to sell it to the church who would buy it to suppress it who would buy it to keep it quiet oh clever so he had this amazing scam going on. Very specific and very uh, very small audience for the scam. He needed, <laughs> yeah, but I probably probably big money. Yeah, the know, elders I, were. Yeah, it was a good. Yeah, it was a good angle. Yeah. So I kind of translated that into an X file where I I wrote about a um, a '60s radical uh, who had who had started uh, forging Jesus Christ's kind of lost gospels, right? In which Jesus took a wife and had sex with women, and you know was more of a human than he is in traditional. Isn't that the uh, last temptation of Christ? A Basically, little bit like yeah. that. Well, you know, uh, am I guilty of forgery? Maybe, but maybe just influence, you right? Know? Like it was. That's a book that I love, and a movie that I was certainly aware of, and. Um, so I wrote this uh, X file that was kind of based on this guy who believed he became. Jesus. But that was the thing about Hoffman is when he wrote as uh-huh. as uh, Joseph Smith, he believed that he was that he was Joseph Smith. So he didn't think they were actually forgeries in the end. And like, and also, if you think about the credibility of Joseph Smith, I mean, we you know whoever decides to believe what he wrote about the golden plates and where the right. underpants, whatever those are, I mean, it seems right. like there's a. It seems like Joseph Smith of all people would be flattered that Hoffman took it upon himself <laughs> to to, right. to create some right. more bullshit in his name. Right. So, <laughs> so I had, I had all these strains in my mind from that time. I had never addressed the Mormon aspect of it, uh-huh. but I kind of addressed it through a Jesus Christ aspect of it. And um, there was also this, this um, sentiment or, you know, I don't know if you know anything about history of Mormonism, but in order to, joined statehood utah which was mormon in the late 1800s had to not denounce but uh, set aside polygamy and this thing called blood atonement otherwise you know everyday american the union wouldn't allow them in so lo and behold brigham young said ah you know we don't really practice that stuff anymore and they joined the union so um it was polygamy and it was blood atonement what's blood atonement well, that's that's the thing. This is how I started getting into the story, or the story started taking shape in my mind. Blood atonement is this idea that there are sins that a man c- can commit that are beyond the atoning blood of Christ. Now, the beauty of the Christian sacrifice is that it it, it achieves forgiveness. It's all inclusive. Well, that's what I thought, but right. not 
not in this this blood atonement says, and I'm sure it's some kind of a murder, usually with the murderer's state of mind and play intent. So there are certain kinds of murder that you have to be killed in return for. This is in, in the Mormon religion or in Christianity? Yes. In the Mormon this religion. This is a, a fringe Mormon belief. Uh-huh. It's a kind of a capital punishment. Hmm. So I was like, oh, wow, Blood Atonement is an excellent driver of a story. You know, Blood Atonement is an excellent fictional device. I, either very, either administering it or running from it. Both. You know, right. or deciding, or deciding. In, in my case, it's a father and son. The father is looking at his son thinking, do I have to, in order to save my son's soul. Do I have to kill him? So I was like, wow, this is the kind of stuff that I really like thinking about and I like writing about. And um, I thought if I could write a tale or a novel that mm. was, you know, not a religious novel at all, but but around around these issues, uh, you know, I use the word fun, you know, because the middle of the book is is kind of comedic because you have these three kids who have been raised in Agata de Vida, which is what they called their compound in the desert haven't seen any other humans their whole life. They basically lived in this bubble. Wow. And they get taken out and put into put into Rancho Cucamonga High School. Mm-hmm. So the middle is this very fish out of water culture, you know, cultural innocence trying to survive. The weirdo Mormon kids. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I don't know if that answers your question, but but it's like I my interest in Mormonism was then driven by my uh knowledge of these strains within it. I really liked the idea that, you know, that they had pushed aside these, you know, and not anti-American, but on, you know, things that America couldn't handle like polygamy or blood atonement in order to join the union. And then I had studied with a guy named Harold Bloom at Yale when I was a graduate student. That guy, huh? Brilliant. I mean, just the most brilliant mind I've ever been around. What was his big book? book? The Anxiety of Influence. How'd you reference him in your mind? He had written about Joseph Smith, and he called him an, an American genius. And mm. I was like, "What the fuck, Joseph Smith? Uh, One of the great I mean, hucksters." Well, yes, but I read Bloom on Joseph Smith, and it informed my book in that Bloom talks about Smith as, you know, his whole anxiety of influence. Bloom is about being belated. Like here we are, you and me, we've come in the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of genius behind us. Yeah. There's not a lot of stuff we can say or do that's new. Hmm. We have that anxiety of influence. We can't we can't be better than our betters and the people that came before. It's very difficult. But so that's a that's a, a condition, not a fact. That's a condition, a psychological condition. Right. A, a literary condition for Bloom. Right. Literary slash psychological right. condition. So what he says about Joseph Smith is you know, it's it's in the name. They're Latter-day Saints. Smith Smith is taking this backwards-looking religion, Christianity, which is, you know, based on something that happened 2,000 years ago. And right. Miracles. And he's saying, no, that shit's still happening. We're right. saints now. We can, st- it's very American. It's like, no, you know, yeah. you're a God. I'm a God. Yeah. We're all gods. We're yeah. all saints. Yeah. Miracles are still happening. Yeah, we can move Jesus to the States. He's a, He's our guy. It's an American. Right. Yeah. No, I, I like the idea of it being an American phenomenon. But I think what you're addressing then is that the the notion that even though Brigham Young said, "All right, we're you know we're on board with uh, being part of the union," but you know secretly we we've got our own code, and we've got our own laws, and we've well, got our own way of life. You know, it's interesting you say that because there are uh, I don't know if it's historical fact, but there's been heavy rumors that. I don't know if it was Smith or Brigham Young that had tried to negotiate with a foreign country 
while they were to move the church there like yeah 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 i don't know just doing negotiations you know not (laughs) not allowing the american government to do it right right well you know it is salt lake city is one of the only you know kind of functioning theocracies uh in 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 this i would say the only one in this country Uh, but it is that i mean you go to that town you're like we're in it this is how this is here that, that was my fear when I when I had when I had like the vague cloud of this novel idea in my yeah. mind about a year ago. Uh, I was like, oh fuck, you know, I'm gonna have to go to Utah. Nothing against Utah, but it's like if I wanna if I wanna know what it looks like and feels like and sounds like, yeah, I could go there for some months and really get the lay of the land and and you know, it's nice there. I'm sure it's beautiful. There, yeah, but I'm lazy, you uh-huh. know, and I I like my home in L.A. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> I set out like the first. <laughs> First, the uh, feelers of research, which uh-huh. is why I'm very, very lazy. I don't like research, but I know it's necessary. So I, I, I contacted this guy who was working with me for me, and I said, uh, just find me pockets of Mormonism throughout the country uh, and, and let me know where they are and how valuable the land is where they are, because it's a land grab book, too. There's a capitalist land grab happening underneath. Did you go to New Mexico? I think a lot of them are down in Silver City, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I got this this document back that was fascinating. So there was there were pockets, like real pockets of Mormonism all over the country. But they fucking founded San Bernardino. Mormons founded San Bernardino. And I was like, it's my L.A. novel. I'm going to write my L.A. novel. <laughs> Thank God. I'm too lazy to go to Utah, which is an hour plane ride. But now I can just drive to San Bernardino. Uh, well, that's interesting. So, like, I get the feeling that uh, that this was the this was the this was the goal that this is what you wanted to do. Which, right? Oh, um, yeah. I, I didn't really have a goal. I mean, that was that was the that was the idea. Where'd you grow up? New York City. And was your dad an academic or? No, my dad was. Um, he worked for the American Jewish Committee, uh, the AJC. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah. In what capacity? I don't really know. I mean, he had like a nine to five job. I believe I believe he was in public relations, they called it. What did what did that what did the American Jewish community what do they do? I mem- I know I remember seeing the AJC as a Jew. I know I know the, the AJC, I know those letters. But what, what is their what is their uh goal? I wish I could call up I wish I could get you my dad and tell you. But uh, he's 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 no longer with us. But uh, I don't really know. I was young. I, I you know he had an office in Midtown. I believe he, <laughs> it's, it's, he a, it's so funny about people and their dads. It's like I go to the office and I can play with the stapler, but I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's all I remember. <laughs> and uh, he wrote he wrote uh, speeches. I know that he wrote. He was a writer. He was good with words. Were you brought up Jew ish? Uh, no. No, he was a total cultural Jew, I'd say, not a religious Jew. But. So you're like, and your mom's Jewish or no? No, my mother, my mother is from a small fishing village in Scotland. <laughs> wow, how did that happen? Uh, it was an unholy, an unholy uh, match. But how did they find each other? Yeah, in uh, in Europe after the war, my dad uh, was in uh, Rome and Paris, and they were both teaching uh, Berlitz English. Huh. And oh, met. really? And they were teaching English as a second language? To, yeah, to... she was the first uh, woman, probably first person in her family to ever attend college. She got out of there. I mean, God bless her. She's a strong, strong person. And she 
valued education and, and left and was, I don't know what she was doing in Europe, but she was out there alone on her own and she met my dad and uh, they came back to New and York. And she met a God. charming Jew. Yeah, he's charming. He was charming. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, he brought her back to New York saying, oh, basically, I got to say goodbye to my parents. You know, we're going to move to London. I think he wanted to raise kids in London. Uh -huh. and, but he didn't know Jews well enough to know that he was never going to leave his mom. <laughs> got her. Yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that you have family in Scotland? Oh, uh, yeah, I do. And do you I go do. there? I've been to Scotland a few times. I have a kilt. I have my own tartan. I have my own, my own tartan kilt. And uh, oh, so you're official? Is that what that means? That you you could like if you go, you're ready to uh, you know you can hang out with the fellas. I guess I don't know, um, but uh, I feel very much that mix, though. I feel very much a mix of of as I said, cultural Jew and rural Lutheran. I uh -huh. feel like that my sweet spot. So. You grew up in New York. What were you? Did you act as a kid, or you didn't act as a kid? No, no, I never. Um, I played sports. I didn't act, um, and I I read and I wrote. My dad, my dad, you asked. My dad actually supplemented his uh, income from the AJC by writing little political books. Oh, really? Like little knockoff satires, like uh, uh, the Wisdom of Spiro Tiagnu. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, like paperbacks. They were published. Yeah, this Valentine paperbacks. They were these little, like you could fit them in your back pocket. And they're funny. They're funny. Yes, he was a satirist. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote the uh, he wrote he, a couple of coloring books. He wrote the psychiatrist coloring book, the Nikita Khrushchev coloring book, and this was all kind of to supplement the income because he also liked to play poker. He had like different ways of like he played poker at the house. Did you have a, a group of guys that would come over and smoke when you were growing up? No, not at the house. Uh, he he played out, and he he usually won. He was a good poker player. He'd win like a hundred bucks, which is a big deal. So my dad <clears throat> then he wrote a play that was on Broadway in 1967 called "The Trial of Lee Harvey Oswald," and it, it was not a comedy, as you can probably tell from the. So he wrote that uh, after Oswald was shot, obviously, and and it, uh... only four years after. So he had the the uh, the hypothesis was uh, if Oswald hadn't been shot, this is the trial. Interesting. So he, he, yeah. he, I, I feel like I've heard of that play. Is that possible? Closed, closed uh, before, closed in like three days. Really? Why? Uh, to hear him tell it, uh, he would, he would say that people just weren't ready to see shots of Kennedy's head, you know, blown up and right. exploded. You know, I remember I was seven. It was the first theater experience I ever had, aside from maybe you're a good man, Charlie Brown, right? Which was a little, a little lighter. Uh, fair yeah you don't yeah they they don't show charlie's head being blown open <laughs> yeah. yet yeah. No. yeah yeah it's like when when uh when lucy trips him and he flips up on his back his head doesn't blow open you're a motherfucker charlie brown yeah <laughs> yeah uh so so that kind of blew your mind well it was my first experience of uh of any kind of performance and uh it's pretty radical what year was that so that was 67 68 yeah i was seven years old yeah and my dad asked me what i thought uh, after and and in, in the play which was very very long as mm. i recall uh, oswald is sitting in a chair um it's a courtroom scene he's sitting in a chair and he doesn't say anything for the whole first act before intermission so like he's like an hour sitting in that chair as as the prosecution and the defense is talking around him 
And my dad asked me, what, what did you think after the play? And I said, how did he not have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> so that was my, I was perceptive about acting from the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> what if you had to? What if? What do you do if you have to go and you're sitting? There? What do you do if you're Oswald and you still got to pee? Stuck on stage, <laughs> can't get out to pee. So, but it seems like if you ended up at Yale, so that, you know your your family or you obviously put a premium on education. You must have been a pretty My good mom. student. It, it didn't seem you don't you don't seem like you were necessarily connected. So you had to do the work. Not connected at all. It was all scholarship stuff. I went to a very uh, fancy New York high school on scholarship. And then I, I, I had a scholarship at Princeton based on need. And then uh, I got a Mellon fellowship to go to Yale. So pretty much all my stuff was uh, paid for. My mom had to take out uh, some loans to help pay for school. I took out student loans, uh, but we did get help. Yeah. What did you study undergrad at Princeton? I, I studied English literature, just a you know, general liberal arts. Uh, what was your education. focus? Did you have a focus on the literature? Uh, probably modern. Like my junior year, I wrote on Virginia Woolf and my senior thesis. At Princeton, you have a choice of choosing. Uh, you can either take uh, four courses or you can take three and write your senior thesis. So it's yeah. basically a, a year-long book that you got to come up with. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I wrote on Beckett. Beckett's novels, of all things. So you were in it, man. You were like on the professor track. Exactly. That was my track. So you're not even you're not even going to write about Beckett's plays. You're like, you know, there's not enough attention being paid to Beckett's novels. What was the the Well, you're giving you're you're giving it a much nicer slant than the one I had, which was there's so many brilliant people who've written on Beckett's plays, but nobody's written about Beckett's novels. Right. I'll do okay, you know. Right. <laughs> like it's a unexplored territory. I just got to right. I just got to make but, sense. And I don't have to do much research. Again, we can go back to my laziness. <laughs> and and uh, all right. So, so you, what was the angle on the novels? Was there a theme? Was there like you oh know my like God. I was caught up in the sway of this French stuff. Um, what like uh, like Lacan or like uh, yeah Foucault yeah. and like yeah yeah the postmodernists. Yeah. Huh. So I was. I, the, the name, I can't remember what I wrote about, but the name of it was uh, The Schizophrenic Critique of Pure Reason. That's what it was called. And... and uh, Fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was Lacan calling. <laughs> From the grave. He's like, how, how dare you? How dare you? Uh, and, and I don't really remember what I was writing about or what my idea was, but it was basically, in a nutshell, it would be, and this is to make it a cliche and, and everything, but, uh, you know, the only sane response to an insane world is insanity, right. basically. So it was basically that. Got it. And so then you go to Yale for, for master's in English? No, PhD, but I didn't finish. So I, I was admitted into the PhD program, but I... I did my classwork and I sat my orals and I passed those. And then I was uh, supposedly on to my uh, dissertation when I started um, acting, really. You mean you started acting to get out of your dissertation? Uh, that's one way to interpret it. Yeah, probably. You know, I would say my soul did that. My mind didn't make that decision, but my soul was like looking around like you can't do this your whole life. You just can't. What was the dissertation that 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 drove you to acting? That <laughs> What was that one? I want to know the name of that one. 
That was called Magic and Technology in Contemporary American Fiction and Poetry. That seems a little broad, but probably, you know, you just pick a few and go at it. Exactly. Well, that's what you do. Yeah. So what I was, what you pick a few and you go at it. That's life, isn't it? So, so I was, I was going to write on uh, on uh, pension. Uh, James Merrill, the poet. Uh, Robertson Davies, mm. the Canadian author. Um, Ishmael Reed, an mm-hmm. African American author, and Norman Mailer. So I had those five that I was going to write about, and um, basically that the idea behind that one was that. Uh, you know, throughout throughout human history, there's been this notion of magic, but magic has always been like black magic and white magic. Uh, you know, there's there's a sense in which there's some magic that you shouldn't do, right? Like Faust, Faustus. You know, it's, sure, it's a sure. very heavy yeah. strain. You know, don't don't our, uh, conjure up the devil and and exactly. ask him for a favor. Exactly, but magic also is a primitive technology. It's a way in stories the way people made shit work, like they're flying. And magic right but now we have technology that does magical things right but we don't discuss technology in terms of bad and good in terms of moral and immoral so i was saying that these writers are kind of imbuing technological fields with magical thoughts and mm. that they're saying just because we can do it they're not saying it they're authors but just because we can do something right does that mean that we should well, that, those conversations are definitely happening now. I know that was, and I that was how many years ago did I was I thinking of writing? God that? damn it! If you'd only finished it, you could be a professor now. Damn it! <laughs> and just be a kind of weird tenured, uh, broke yeah. professor having this yeah. conversation with a student, and sitting yeah. in your office wondering why you never want pursued acting. <laughs> I should have been an actor. <laughs> So what what so what was the moment where why why you bail on your dissertation to act? How did that? What what was the opportunity around that? How did you just all of a sudden switch switch uh, tracks? Did you were you taking classes? Did you get a part out of nowhere? Uh, all good questions and kind of zeroing in on the truth. I I think that um, I was trying. I I knew that I wanted to write. Mm which is what you you asked and it's true i i knew that 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 that's what i wanted to do and i also knew that i'd written poetry up until that point mostly i hadn't really written prose yeah i i used to do that i was an english major i wrote some poetry again how do yeah. you feel about that again that it, it seems like that's the the easier route you know the like yeah. it's easy <laughs> well it's not that it's easy it's just like who's going to tell you it's no good you know, there's it's just two ways to go with it. Like either that's like yeah. people who don't really read poetry. I guess what I'm saying is that in order for poetry to be judged properly, it's a very uh, small world. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, some uh, I've heard it said that poetry is wonderful because you can't make any money at it. You know, that's why that's why poetry is. Wonderful. Yeah, I still enjoy reading a few po- poems here and there, and uh, you know, because I've been going through my books. But like, you read poetry, and you know, what makes it land, what makes it not land is. You got a, a wide, a wide berth there. Do you know what I mean? What I'm saying is that if you were the guy that doesn't like doing research, it seems to me that it would make sense that like, why, you know, I can knock out a poem. You could just kind of work a poem like a math equation. You know, you don't have to spend your entire life writing 400 pages. Well, it's an, it's an insulated world that you're doing a poem, you know, it, 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 it will give you the terms in which it wants to be read. Right. Know, each poem. Do you do you look back at your poetry and you're okay with it, or do you sort of not? It's decent. Like the poetry itself is okay. My mind was young, you right? Know? So the 
the things that I'm feeling and thinking are, you know. Yeah, I, right. <laughs> Right, you, so, you look at that like if only that kid knew what he was getting into <laughs> exactly he's got a way with words but he's got nothing to say <laughs> yeah so okay so then you're you're a poet and no, uh, I, th- I was thinking i was thinking well that's super lonely yeah. um and 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 prose wow that that seems even more lonely because you really got to sit your ass down and and work through that stuff so i thought okay the only way that I can, you know, be out in the world, which is what I was interested in being, was to write plays. Mm. Uh, so I thought I'll, I'll be, I'll go in the theater, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll write, I'll write uh, plays, and then, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to write plays, then I should probably learn something about acting. If I'm going to write words for actors to say, I should probably think, I should probably know something about what that is. Interesting. So you took a class. Yeah, I did take a class. It was also the same time when I was told I needed to make like three thousand dollars to. To, for the summer uh, for my graduate life, my, my, my fancy graduate lifestyle. Mm. And a um, buddy of mine who was an actor said, oh, you can make three grand doing a commercial. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And uh, he said, we well, got to meet my agent. I met the agent and she said, yeah, I'll send you on commercial auditions, but if you want to go on TV, theatrical and movie auditions, uh, you'll have to get into class. And I was like, all right, I'm not doing anything. This summer. <laughs> I don't want to work on my dissertation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, did you, you get a commercial? I, I got a commercial the last day of summer. Oh, so all that you put the whole summer of work in, then you nailed it. What commercial? What was it for? It was for Lowenbrow beer. Was that what uh, instilled the love for acting in you? Was the? Oh no, not at all. No. <laughs> I remember I, I I kind of choked on it. Oh yeah, I didn't have a good day. I didn't have a good day at work. Yeah, I I wasn't uh, I wasn't ready for that yeah. the pressure of that. And, and what did the class teach you? Was it a good class? Did you take it at Yale? I didn't take it at Yale. No, no, no. I was kind of schizophrenic at that point because I was teaching. I also had to teach at Yale while I was a graduate student. So um, I would come into New York and go to class. I kept that going. I would ride my bicycle to the train station in New Haven, get my bike on the train, take it to Penn Station, ride around New York, get back on and go. It was kind of a it was cool graduate student kind of vibe. I found this amazing class. I say amazing because it was Strasbourg technique, which is like known as the method, I guess sure. you call it. And it was very, um, you know, nothing to do with the words. I, you know, my conception of what acting was when I first thought about it or, or began was like, oh, I got to figure out like smart ways to say these things. Right. But it, this was all about, you know, what are you feeling and what's behind the words and the words don't matter yeah. at all. Who taught it? A woman named Marsha Halfrecht. She was wonderful. Uh, and, uh, you know, these classes would just go on forever. You know, people would, we'd put on these scenes yeah, and, and Marsha would stop them in the middle and she'd make you relax and yeah. do like sense memory stuff. Huh. So you'd watch a scene that was a five minute scene, but it would be two hours watching these people struggle through. The scene. Yeah. I've been in those where people, there's a lot of crying involved. Yeah. A lot of crying, yeah. a lot of blaming of the father. Yeah, sure. That, a lot of blaming of the father. Yeah, that, well, that is the, you know, that is the complaint of civilization at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the patriarchy fucked it all up. It fucked it all up. Yeah. It's been, it's been yeah. dad's fault since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. That's a poem I'm working on. Um, <laughs> so, so, so apparently that class, but it sunk in. You got it. You understand what makes acting, acting, and, and and did you write the plays once you kind of got a sense? I wrote one play. I wrote one play. I've I've written you know screenplays, teleplays, things like that since. But 
Um, I just wrote one play while I was at Yale. I did and never put it on. And it was, it's not good. No. And uh, I'll say this, you know, coming from my background in, in literature and in, in like uh, the, the, uh, the halls of, of literary criticism, academe, you know, these kinds of things. I was not, you know, I didn't read for plot, you know, but, but um, movies and, sto- and stories that we film are, are plot. You know, yeah. Plot. And I had a disdain for plot. I was like, you know, when I'm going to talk about a book, I'm not going to talk about what happens. Mm-hmm. What are you going to talk about? Magic? I'm talk about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about, you know, the structural aspect of it. I'm going to talk about the political aspect of it. The, right, right. You know, the meaning. Or the meaning that the author didn't even know. Right, that's right. where we were at, you know, at that point, blindness and insight. You know, you write around exactly what you're blind to. And the critic who's empowered now to find out through your blindness to your own stuff, what exactly you were actually trying to say. So is this, is this Bloom's influence? Oh, that's not Bloom. That's Paul DeMann and people that came after him. Bloom was much more of a humanist. So who are these guys, these other guys? Paul DeMann, I don't know him. Um, shit, uh, what's his name? Not Diderot. Uh, De- well, people at Lacan, Foucault, uh-huh. going back to Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, just... Uh, oh, were you going to think, were you, th- were you thinking Derrida? Yes, I was thinking Derrida. Thank you. Boom. It's fun to say, isn't it? It's a good word to say. Good word to say. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> Just drop it. Yeah. There we go. So, also, I'll say this. Yeah. What I wanted to say was like becoming an actor, mm-hmm. especially getting uh, the X Files, which, you know, it's an action show, it's sure. a plot show. That really, I needed to be exposed to that as a writer actually i needed to and as an actor i needed to see that what happens is what draws people in it's great because you got to see it 210 times (laughs) (laughs) and a couple of movies worth yeah exactly plenty of plot for you to understand yep yep but that wasn't the first role though i mean you kind of kicked around a little bit didn't you yeah yeah i uh I was on Twin Peaks. I did a movie called The Rapture uh, with Michael that, Tolkien. I was going to talk to you about that because I love that fucking movie. I like Michael Tolkien movies a lot and I miss him. I haven't seen a Michael Tolkien movie in a long time. Uh, Michael wrote the uh, the miniseries that Ben Stiller did last year. Um, uh, oh, yeah, Morris. that's right. That was great. Yeah, yeah. The one with uh, Benicio and uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, the Arquette. Uh, yeah. Like I'm, like I'm at that age where I'm like, I know there's an it's an Arquette. <laughs> And I know I've interviewed her, uh, but but Michael's a great writer. You know, I wrote the the player. I know the, the player. I love that. But that that rapture with the uh, what's that guy's name? The blonde guy who played the sheriff uh, or the cop in that movie? Yeah, uh, Will Patton. Will Patton. See, together we can get there. Yeah. You and me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I always liked that guy too. But that was an intense movie because it dealt with such a big idea. It literally dealt with the rapture. The, uh, yeah. the the Christian rapture, and it's such yeah. a small movie, and you're really yeah. talking about the end of the world, and yep. and and the end of that movie where it's just that sound, and you've got to buy it. it. The poetry of the thing was very, it worked. You know, I was I loved that movie. It had an impact on me. Well, me too. Uh, when when I when I was finished with this book, Truly Like Lightning, I I realized that I had been influenced by the rapture long long ago because I was. I was dealing with similar themes in this, and I actually called Michael up, or I, I emailed him, mm-hmm. and and I said, "Hey, I, I just finished this novel. Uh, would you care to read it? I really think that 
that, you know, the rapture kind of marinated in me all these years. And when I was writing it, I had no, not even one conscious thought about the rapture, mm. but I realize now, and I, I, I sent it to Michael and he actually blurbed it for me. He's written a nice blurb for me on the book. Yeah. How's he holding yeah. up? He must be an older guy now. Yeah, he's good. I think he's good. I haven't seen him, but yeah. uh, you know, his emails are sharp. That's good. And then, all oh right, so Twin Peaks, you did a few episodes of that. I did um, a movie called Ruby, which was about Jack, Jack Ruby. Ruby I, movie. I, I played uh, J.D. Tippett, the officer who Oswald shot or who was shot in Dallas the same same day as Kennedy was shot. See, that would have been the perfect moment to, you know, from the recognition from that, you should have, uh, you know, put up your dad's play. <laughs> now you sound like him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My, my dad said to me once, and he said, I, I, you were talking about dads before, and, you know, the, the fucking patriarchy and all that, but he said, I'm giving you the greatest gift a father could ever give his son. I'm not very successful. <laughs> you can win. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's kind of, there's a wisdom to that, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to mm -hmm. fight that fight. No, I don't, I don't think I ever did. Well, I mean, it seems like, you know, from the way you talk about him, you know, specifically the fact that he was, you know, outside of not understanding his work, you understood that he was a creative guy and a funny guy and a guy that had a political point of view and, you know, something to say yeah. and some balls, you know, and that, those are all the good things. Not like, you know, we could have. You know, could have you know been a, a schmata hustler and made a billion dollars selling garbage clothing. You know, you got lucky. Yeah, I knew. I also knew that he was frustrated. I also knew that he considered himself a novelist, mm. uh, and and he he did publish his first novel when he was seventy three, two years before he died. So, I and I published my first novel when I was fifty five. So I guess I did win. You know, at least the chronological race. You know. <laughs> But both were both late, and we both kind of we both kind of ran from. Well, I don't think he ran from it. I think he had to make you know he had to support a family, you know, and uh, right. But it sounds like he got a lot a, a lot done. So you got a good work ethic and a a good. Uh, career. Well, that's from my mom. That's from my mom. My yeah. mom is. Oof, oof. She's still around. Yeah, she's ninety ninety. She'll be ninety one in a couple of days. And she's together. Yeah, let's, let's see. <laughs> good, yeah. good. So now the. Like, I, I have to, like, so you get the X-Files. I mean, you had no idea that that would be your life for a decade, did you? Oh, hell no. I mean, I thought it came my way. And, and, and at that point, I shared the prejudice against television actors that was that was current during that time. Uh -huh. It was before the so-called golden age of television, where we realized that, you know, actors are actors and they can exist in any medium. But then it was like, oh, if you're a t if you're a TV actor, you're a shitty actor, right? And uh, I mean, partly it was X Files, ER, you know, these these shows that were or NYPD Blue, especially, you know, sh shows that were very well acted, you know. But that was before that, right? And I thought, eh. but I needed money, and uh, I thought it was a really cool pilot, and I thought, there's no way, uh, and I wasn't interested in aliens. <laughs> And I just thought, there's no way. How can this go on for very long? Right. I thought, okay, maybe we'll do six. Maybe we'll, if we're lucky, we'll do a season. But there's no way. I'm a really, I'm really good at that stuff. I should run a studio. I really have a good mind for seeing what's going to hit. 
And it's so funny because it's like not just the acting thing. You stepped into a thing where it's like it's not about TV acting or not TV acting. It's that you stepped into a world that, that is going to have an eternal uh, uh, well of weird cult attention. Yeah. Like you, you yeah. know, it's almost like being on Star Trek. I mean, uh, for the yeah. rest of your life, you're going to deal yeah. with guys coming up to you going like, hey, you know, in that episode where you- it's, it's the obituary line, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I make peace with that. You know, because I, I kind of, I struggled with that for a while, you know, but then I realized there's no way to uh, outrun it because it is, it is one of the biggest shows of of all time. So you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to make a bigger show. So I'm just feel lucky to have been, been on that show, you know? And then at first it was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to compete with that. I've got to somehow erase it you know oh so you're um, conscious of that you're like yeah after 200 episodes but you so you have a good relationship with the fans oh absolutely yeah. but at the time maybe i didn't you know at the time i was like don't typecast me i can do other things i can do other things um and then i went you know and then i when i got off the show i was you know i wanted to do movies and i did a few but i really wanted to do comedy and i wasn't getting those roles in movies and that's when i i californication came my way and then i i'd never thought about doing another tv show because the season of an x-files was so onerous and debilitating you know 25 one hour episodes running around in the in the in the cold yeah. at night and i was just like no never again i can't do that again and uh then cable came around i was like oh eight episodes that was just like whoa yeah why can- not you can do this. And then California case was really like adult comedy. Uh, the kind of comedy that I want to do reminded me of like movies from the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, and uh, so I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, I'll do that. In a way that was like me pushing against, you know, Mulder was sexless. Yeah. Mulder never had a woman. Right. And, you know, and it was comedy, which I, which I really, um, I liked the challenge of that. What was your relationship with uh, Shanley? I mean, were you guys friends? Yeah, yeah, we were just very, very good friends. Because I, I love those episodes with him, and you know, I was, you know, I, I went to that memorial service. I interviewed him here, and he was like such a amazing. Yeah, he loved you. He's am- he told me about you years and years ago. Oh, that's nice. He told me about your, you know, uh, did you start with a radio show or did you start with a podcast? I don't know. I well, I had a radio show many years ago on Air America, and then uh, I think that's I think he knew you from that. Yeah, and then he, we did a podcast together, and we had a nice time. And you know, he was he was a he was a, a special person. He was special to me. Um, yeah, I miss him uh, daily. It's weird to say, you know, um, but I what. One one year when I was finishing up the X Files, like the third year, I guess I I said to my agents that I didn't have the energy to go do a movie in my short hiatus, which was like six or seven weeks. But I did want to do um, Saturday Night Live, and I did want to do uh, the Larry Sanders show because I was I loved it. I would get the VCR tapes sent up to Vancouver. Oh yeah, <laughs> when that music would come on, I'd just get excited and. Uh, they came back and said, "Oh yeah, Gary loves you. He wants he wants you to do it." And uh, so I came. I was back in L.A. and drove down to Radford where they shot it. And I was I came in and I was watching Gary do a like a talk show segment. I was sitting really close, and he he looked at me, walked by me. Clear to me, he had no fucking clue who I was. Uh-huh. You know, Gary did not love me in any way. Uh-huh. 
and uh, the guy did not know me. And then um, came time to shoot our first scene. And um, it's a scene in which I, I'm me, obviously, and, and uh, I'm a, a guest on the show, but Bill Cosby has talked so much that my spot has been pushed and I pull a fucking hissy fit. Right. That's the, that's the idea. Yeah. Showbiz, showbiz story. Right. So we do one take in a hallway, Todd Holland, the director, good guy, good director. And uh, they cut and Gary looks at me and he goes, how old are you? (laughs) And I said, 32. And he goes, what took you so long? (laughs) And I was like, to this day, it's like, you know, it's one of those moments uh-huh. that I treasure in my in my entire life, not just in my friendship with Gary. Or it's just like, to me, that was such a validation of what I was trying to do, my comedy, whatever. Uh-huh. It was just like from him, that was worth everything. And that's when you became friends on his show. Yeah. And then he said, you play basketball? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I have a game every uh, Sunday at my house. Why don't you come by and play? And uh, came by and played a few times. And then that's when I started talking about this coming back on and talking about like the man crush and all that stuff about where, you know, I want to come back on and kind of have a crush on him, but it wasn't homosexual crush. It was just, yeah, it was just those are of- funny episodes. That was a famous basketball game. You must have seen a lot of people over there. Oh yeah, it was a very funny basketball game. Yeah, I very bet. funny. Yeah, good people. Yeah, yeah, it's hard, man. It's it's hard when people go, you know. It is, it is, and and like I said, uh, but he's not, you know, to me, he's not. It's weird because people do go. I was just thinking today, you know, I was thinking, I I rarely think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg anymore, and it's not been long that she's dead, right? Know? And she wasn't my friend. But she was something that I thought about, someone that I thought about. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, how much did you think about her when she was alive, honestly? Well, a lot a lot for somebody that I didn't know, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just feel like she's gone. Yeah. And I don't feel that way about Gary, it's oddly. I, yeah, it took me a long time to really... Uh, you know, fully appreciate him, you know, because I used to see him when I was a, I was a doorman at the comedy store in the 80s and I'd see him a few times. Yeah. But, you know, he didn't go there that often. But it took me a long time to really sort of appreciate the uniqueness of his um, voice, you know, of how he did it, you know, and his, you know, and certainly talking to him was one way. And then, you know, you know, talking to Judd and then, uh, you know, posthumously, you, you know, really sort of, yeah, and I watched Larry Sanders and everything, but you know, after he passed away and hearing to see people talking about him and Kevin Nealon and every like and then Love Kevin. Oh God, he was so fucking funny at that memorial service. I know. I, I saw I saw a uh, a recording of Oh it. my God. I mean Yeah. But but yeah, you know, just really appreciating the way he handled life and what his struggle was. And I think Judd definitely you know, did did, he did a, a beautiful job with that documentary. Oh, and the book, he really yeah. kind of locked in. He really loved uh, Gary a lot. So, where do you like in terms of like? I know I listen to some music too. I mean, when do you like? Are you just like a workaholic? Or wait, before we get to that, let's talk about like I'm a recovery guy, and I know you had your issues. Now, did did Californication? Did that? Did you become that guy, or <laughs> how did it happen? No. No, not not at all. Um, that 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 was something. 
I, I don't really talk about it. I don't like to talk about it because I don't like to give it kind of currency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Sure. But but I was trying to save my marriage, mm. you know? Right. That's what yeah. I was yeah, and it it almost happened, right? You almost saved it. You tried. I almost did it. I almost saved it. Are you guys? Are, do you get together? Are you are okay with each other in terms of things with the kids and everything? Fantastic. Oh, that's good. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's yeah. great. Oh, she's she's wonderful. Okay, well, then moving on from that, what um, where do you? What's the music thing? Do you play an instrument, or you just write songs and get you got a band? I, I play a little guitar. I play enough guitar to throw chords together. Uh huh. You know, I, I can hear melodies, which is weird because I don't I never could sing. I never had a I don't have like a what they call an instrument. Yeah. You know? So but I, I can hear melodies and I can, you know, more and more approximate them uh, with my voice. And I can certainly write lyrics. So I have a band and, you know, I'll like come up with little demos on my garage band and just play guitar under under melodies and, and lyrics. And then we work on it. And is it, it's just a passion project. You don't have any expectations. I, I never had any expectations for it. I mean, the fact that I've... You've done three... Rec you got a new record coming out. You got a novel coming out and you got this new record coming out. Yeah, so that's all startling to me, you know, especially because, uh, like I mentioned, in terms of my voice, uh, you know, I, I was actually someone... You know, they told, you know, they said, you know, you want it, you just mouth the lyrics, you know, you just, you know, in in, in, ch in church or whatever. Um, but uh, I did go out for the choir when I was uh, probably 11 years old because they got paid. I went to a school called Grace Church School in, in Manhattan. Oh, that's a famous school. Yeah. And some, uh, my mom was a teacher there many, many years. And my friends, they, they, they could, the, who could sing, they were in the choir and they got paid, you know, like a few dollars right. uh, a month, but not only a few dollars a month was forget it for me. That was like, that was all I needed. I never could imagine like, what would I do with $4? Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. You know, I could get that album or I could save up and get those Adidas. Right. Whatever. Yeah. So uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be in the choir. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> not only that, but for when the, the money, pays man, you, yeah, for the money. I don't, I don't know if, if you know this, but when the church pays you, yeah, you probably don't know that being a Jew, yeah, you don't know that when the church pays you, they cut you a the big check, like a golf tournament check. It's like, oh, yeah, it's only for four dollars, but, but it's the huge. actual check, it's the size of you, yeah, when you're, but I was like, <laughs> I want one of those big checks, so I, uh, I auditioned for the choir and uh, you have to audition in front of the whole choir, all my buddies. And the, uh, the choir master sat at the piano and he said, um, okay, I'm going to play a note and I want you to sing the note after it. And I heard literally, okay, I'm going to try to sing the note after the note he plays, not, not sing that note, but the one that comes next. I, that's how I heard it. So he'd be like, boom. And I'd be like, boom. And he'd be like, bum, and I'd be like, bum. And I just remember looking around the room and people were like, oh my God. Like, not only tone deaf, but in a really weird way. So that was my relationship to my singing voice uh, until I started writing songs. You were misunderstood. Exactly. And what do you have a, like a record deal or you just do it? You just self produce it? Yeah, uh, self-produce. Um, but you know, we've had tour. We've had like three or four tours. We I've I've played like three thousand seat places. Uh, 
you know, pretty big, you know, big, huge venues for me. But uh, like, are there a lot of people waiting for after the show so they can ask you ask file questions? Well, yeah, I mean, part of the, the shame of, of, of uh, mu music now is, you know, there's like the meet and greet yeah, beforehand. Sure. So there's a lot of that stuff, a lot of signing of, uh, yeah. of arms. and A lot of excited nerds. Well, you said it. I didn't say it. <laughs> but how come, like, let me ask you this. So when he first started doing X-Files and the stigma of, you know, wanting to be a movie actor and then taking the TV gig, Double, double stigma, though, because also sci-fi couldn't be cheesier. So it's not just TV, sci-fi, triple stigma, it's Fox. Right. Not even a network at that point. Wow. So it's like... You put a lot of thought yeah. into self-flagellation at that point. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but like, what about the stigma of the actor fucking playing rock music? Yeah. Well, if I want to do it, I, it's not going to... That's not going to get in my way. I mean, it, it, you know, if you're going to yell that at me all the time, it's going to hurt my feelings, but it's not going to stop me. Because you like and, doing it. And I think I'm good. You know, I think I have something to say. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think I had something to say. Right. You know? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. So, you know, sure, I guess that's egotistical, but I think we all need that or else we wouldn't be sitting here on microphones talking like we're going to entertain or uh, right. edify people. But I, I, I mean, I get that from you. I mean, like, I, you know, I just from knowing you from you know what certain things you do or your presence in the culture i always thought like well that guy seems like he he's okay with himself <laughs> oh i don't know about that but, <laughs> but you know it's like i guess i'm just, i just i keep on trying to express something right and it's sort of a it's a it's a it's a great thing to i i think to realize like if you have talent and to move it around and to take all the risks you want to take with it. It's a rare thing. Not everybody has it. So why not see what you can do with it? I, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's like, for me, it's just I have ideas or I have notions or I have impulses and they take different forms at this point in my life. And I feel very almost lucky to be able to pursue them yeah, in that way. Right. But But also it's... You know, it's not like I'm just sitting around like having this great time. You know, yeah. it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. That, that novel, you you looked at it, you pick up the pick up the weight of it. I mean, it, it's it's a big book. I mean, I, I mean business. Yeah, I do. I mean business. No, I, I can see. I want to take it seriously. I do. I mean, that's that would be that would be my my weakness probably. You want to be taken seriously. I want that book to be taken seriously. Yeah. You don't want people to go like the guy from the X Files wrote a book, I guess. That's what they're gonna say, but the guy, you know, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> guy from the X Files making a he made a record. Exactly, exactly. I'm sorry to 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 get a laugh out of it, but um, but yeah, I guess that <laughs> that is the deal that you made with uh, with the devil when I took that big check. That's right. That is the magic. That is the Faustian uh, contract. Absolutely, that's the magic and technology right there. And it's and I I can't go back on that deal. Nor, nor do I want to. That, and that is the way it goes. And I just need to, in my mind, I keep on doing the work. And I hope and believe that eventually people will see that I mean business. Well, I hope so too. And, uh, and I didn't, I, it, I didn't uh, not read the book out of disrespect or no desire. I just didn't make the time. Uh, but I have it. And I, and I will. Thank you. And it was great talking to you, man. Thank you. It was nice to meet you too. There you go, folks. Huh? 
What an enjoyable conversation. The new book, Truly Like Lightning, comes out tomorrow. And you can check out his music. He's got a new album coming out. There's a single called Laying on the Tracks. You can check out on YouTube. You can watch all the X-Files. If you haven't seen the X-Files, spend the rest of your life watching them. There's enough of them. All right. I'm putting my gum back in my mouth. And I'm going to play some guitar for you. and La Fonda and cat angels everywhere and secret underwear. (laughs) 